Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, and that link will be in the show notes. Welcome to The Less Stressed Life, all about making this your time to feel freaking awesome about your life, health, and happiness. This podcast of The Less Stressed Life is hosted by Krista Bigler. Krista is an integrative registered dietitian nutritionist who specializes in reducing food-related stress, inflammation, and symptoms of food sensitivities. She brings over a decade of nutrition expertise and playing with her food to the table. From coaching, teaching, writing, and work within a major food company to behind the scenes for a health celebrity. To learn more, visit lessstresslife.com. This is a treat because I am going to learn so much and I hope that you do too. Today we have Mark Azule, who is a neurotherapist therapist, I believe. And he can correct me in a minute here about exactly what his title is and what that is. But I love the bio he provided. He says, operating out of Boulder, Colorado, Mark Azule is a therapist, coach, entrepreneur, and a goddamn hype machine. He aims to inspire others to dream big, break free, and give their gifts to the world. So I was connected with Mark from a mutual um, dietitian friend that I know online. They worked in a, in a research lab together, and I am excited for him to tell us about the progress of that. And guess what? Today, he's going to talk about fidget toys. Are they all hypers or actually some merit? So welcome, Mark. Yeah, thank you. Happy to be on the podcast. Oh, sure. So neurotherapist, right? Tell me, tell me a little bit more about your background exactly. Clarify it for, for me who knows nothing about this area. Yeah. So um, I'm a psychotherapist, but I have a background in neuroscience. So essentially what I do is I bring in a combination of kind of classical talk therapy. I'm studying uh, psychoanalysis right now, which is what people think of, you know, kind of laying on the couch, free associating the whole Freud thing. But I blend that with uh, um, modern neuroscience findings, right? So there's actually quite a bit of research going into how to live a better life and how to reduce stress and how to reduce symptoms. And we're finding that if you can interface with kind of the biological substrate of the brain, you know, working with limbic system, um, working with the emotional system, working with the amygdala, things like that, you can actually cause um, and bring about much more change. So being neuroscience um, informed, as a psychotherapist is very helpful and helps to ground my practice in research and in what is actually effective with people. 
Interesting. You uh, said some things that make a lot of questions for me, but I'm going to save them till the end. Uh, so we met through a fellow RD connection. You guys did research together and I was just asking you about that. It was mindfulness based. Uh, well, actually, you know, it's a mouthful. Why don't you tell me what you guys did and what were the results were? Because I thought it was really interesting. Sure. Yeah. So we were, uh, I worked with uh, Erica Juleson and we were studying uh, mindfulness based stress reduction. So essentially what that is, is it's a curriculum that was developed, um, I think, in Massachusetts. And it's a series of sessions where the participants go through and they learn about mindfulness skills um, as it applies to stress reduction. So things like, you know, breathing techniques, things like being aware of their emotions, um, things like being able to name and write about their internal experience. And there's also a big community aspect as well. Um, so they're kind of talking to each other about their experiences, about what stresses them out, about what um, they use to cope. And we were studying um, how that actually impacts their brain, right? So there's one thing, and this will be kind of a theme throughout the podcast, is there is the biological effects, right, that you can view by you and putting someone in fMRI um, or by doing certain cognitive tasks. And then there are the subjective effects, which, you know, you give people a survey and you see, you know, how they're rating their experience. And you know, up until pretty much we started doing our research, we knew that mindfulness had a lot of subjective effects, right? So people reported feeling less stressed, right? They reported feeling more calm. They reported feeling more present. But it's hard to know if that is actually real um, because a lot of the mindfulness instruction uses words like calm, relaxed, less stressed. Like they know that's why that they know that's why they're there. Um, so it's likely they may rate themselves higher after going through something. So what the lab at Carnegie Mellon wanted to do is it wanted to use neuroscience to actually see if there were effects on the brain, if the brain physically changed, right? Or if during different cognitive tasks, different cognitive tools, um, that we could see behavioral outcomes. And, you know, the way science works is the more hard evidence along those lines you can get, the more you can promote a certain type of methodology, um, and our professor was very interested in mindfulness and making that more acceptable, you know, in school settings. So very specifically, um, you stressed people out by asking them math questions in a very demeaning way. That's what you said, right? <laughs> yes. So essentially, um, that, that's something that people always find very interesting. There is a um, research methodology called the Trier Social Stress Task. And essentially, it is a way that has been clinically proven to stress people out. And my job was to deliver this task to people. And it, it includes two components. Um, the first is that you ask the participant to uh, show for an interview, but they don't know it's an interview, right? So you, you're like, surprise, this interview, we're going to interview you for a research assistant task. And as they are giving you this interview, you pretty much just stare at them and just like nod your head no and give them kind of blasé and disapproving <laughs> feedback. And this goes on for like five minutes, right? It's like very long. Um, and then the so second it's test, awful for someone else and hilarious for you. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's awful. I mean, it, it like it guaranteed raises up your cortisol and, and stress levels like immediately. Um, and the second one is the math one where it's, it's always something absurd. It's like, you know, count backwards from 13,083 by 13s. Um, and if they mess up, they have to start over. So and you continue to have this kind of like stern, disapproving look at them. Um, and that, that, that goes on for awful. five minutes. Yeah, it's, 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 it's really, really bad. So after 10 minutes of that, people are sufficiently stressed out. Um, and then you can monitor 
um, how much stress they are because we're doing things like monitoring their heart rate. Um, later on, we were taking saliva samples to check out um, their cortisol and their um, adrenaline. Oh, cool. um, some people take blood samples. Some people put um, them actually in an in a fMRI while they're doing this to see how their brain reacts to stress. And what we did is we had them meditate um, before that and see if the meditation exercise helped to insulate them from the stress effect. And? And it did. It did. So, so, so we did see a, a clinical significant um, reduction in, of stress. And we also saw faster cool down. So if they meditated afterwards, their levels would, would go back down to normal faster um, than if they just did a, a distracting task or if they um, like left and came back later. Oh, that's so interesting. And I, and I want to interview someone about meditation specifically because I've been noticing a theme, very common, like uh, people that I would maybe look up to, people who are really successful. You know, I started podcasting by looking at Pat Flynn and, and getting his mentorship, but he talked about his own friends, um, other podcasters, and how there's a very common theme. That, I guess let me back up for a second. I saw a presentation Pat gave and he showed a picture of his office. And one of the things that stuck out to me about the presentation was the picture of his office because he had a meditation space that he'd implemented because it's a game changing. And apparently I need to do this. I've been thinking about getting a couch actually. So <laughs> so maybe we can, maybe we should do some work on this. Was meditation the only thing, only intervention you guys did for reducing um, stress in that test? Yes. So for that particular experiment, that's all we did. And that lab was focused mainly on office meditation. So, you know, in, in science, you try and narrow down the variables as much as possible. Mm -hmm. So we were trying to do that. Um, with some of the bigger tests, like one, one, of, one of the biggest experiments we did is that we put them um, in a retreat. So we actually did a retreat for seven days um, with the homeless population of Pittsburgh. And that had incredible results. Like it had really amazing both subjective and objective results. But a test like that was a little bit confounded, especially because we're working with homeless people, because what they were getting, in addition to meditation, was like a full night's sleep in a safe environment. They were getting, you know, three square meals a day. They were getting community of other people that were interested in change. They were getting like positive attention and instruction. Um, so for those results, it was tough to really know how much effect meditation actually had because there were so many other variables um, at play. That's really interesting. I have lots of thoughts that come to mind. I feel like you could be involved in writing a grant project for. I um, live and work in a place that uh, has a lot of health disparities. There's a lot of economic issues. There's a lot of homelessness um, in this community where I commute to for, for some contract work. Um, and there's a lot of social issues, um, a lot of alcoholism, a lot of... Um, anyway, I, it's very multifaceted and everyone feels very... <laughs> confused about yeah what are some solutions we could do here but i feel like starting with some of that you know there's that that's huge i think that's something that people would take for granted and so i that's awesome that there's research out there to kind of substantiate that if people wanted to move forward with programs like that so i know exactly who i'm going to be sharing this podcast with afterwards uh, um Great. okay so my next question is i was looking at your website a little bit and there's some things that I have been interested in and I don't know much about them. And I was curious if you could tell us a little bit about some of the therapies um, because I've heard people, I'm familiar with another therapist that does EMDR. And so I was curious if you can tell me more about that because I've, you know, what I hear, uh, what I remember is people saying it's amazing. So tell me more about what is EMDR. Yeah, totally. So EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. 
And this is something that was developed in Seattle about 30 years ago um, at one of the universities there and has grown, really exploded into popularity because of its incredible effectiveness with PTSD. So there's kind of this thing, you know, you, you probably use it in your field too. There's no such thing as a quick fix, right? There's no such thing that'll just like cure something. Right. But I'll tell you, EMDR, EMDR cures PTSD. And I, being a research-based person, I don't like saying things like that. But it has an over 80% cure rate for trauma, which is insane. Like nothing has that kind of effectiveness. Um, and it's been really blowing up because of a lot of the veterans, you know, especially coming back from the wars um, in the Middle East, which is a lot of them have this PTSD because, you know, there was no boundaries in the, in the frame of war, right? Like anything could be an enemy at, at any time. Um, so a ton of money has been going into EMDR. And essentially what it does is it works to... Um, allow well let me, let me restart here essentially what trauma is is it is the brain thinking that the past is happening in the present right so for instance with a veteran um if they're afraid um of you know a helicopter what happened is like you know when they're in in the war field right there is a helicopter and when they hear a helicopter noise next thing that happens is you know bombs or napalm or they have to run for cover or they're getting shot at so what the brain is going to do is going to associate the helicopter rotor blades with the fight or flight response. So when they come back to the world and they hear a helicopter, their body is just going to trigger them to, you know, duck and cover, duck and hide. Um, it's bringing a past experience into the present. So what EMDR helps to do, um, does very effectively, is actually separate out the past and the present. And the way that it does that is by using what's called the, or the orientating, sorry, the um, orienting um, function of the brain. So it uses two types of methodologies. The first is literally taking your hands and waving it in front of their face, right? And the second is having these two buzzers that they hold in either hand and vibrating. So you can think of it as, um, you think of classical hypnosis, the idea of like the pendulum moving back and forth. And when the brain is asked to track that, so when you're asked to follow, you know, the pendulum moving back and forth, it actually takes quite a bit of mental energy because you have to constantly track something in real time and you have to track something in the present. While the person is doing that, you're then asking them to think about the past and to bring up these old feelings, and these old traumas. And what it does is it actually, you know, creates these like parallel processes in the brain where the present, the person's feeling safe. There's good rapport with the therapist. They're in a nice, safe therapy room. They're feeling feelings of being like calm, but their emotional experience is going through this really intense, old traumatic situation. And the trauma and the memories in their body um, can then kind of rest in the past. It can then be kind of like intertwined or interweaved is kind of how it's thought with those feelings of safety. Hmm. That's interesting. Does that make sense? Well, yeah. I rem yeah. I'm sitting here thinking that now I know how people feel when I'm talking about something that's so familiar to me, and yet it's the first time I've really ever heard <laughs> about it, and I'm trying to process it all like, interesting. So what does that look like in person? Can you do EMDR virtually? Because I feel like I've I know some therapists that do that, but I'm not sure. I don't like to. Um, some people do. Um, and the reason that I, I don't like to is that there's, uh, I mean, EMDR, there's, there's a lot of nuance that goes with it. Um, so something that can happen with EMDR is when people are in the state, um, they may twitch and they may like make these micro movements. And those, there's no, so far we don't really know what the biological correlate to those are, but those seem to call, um, result in relief for people. So when somebody is talking about their experience, I need to be able to watch their whole body 
and do things to encourage those movements. Um, so I'm not I'm not touching them, but I'm saying things like, that's great, you know, just let it move out. Um, that's the work, you know, you're doing really well because people can get very self-conscious about twitching on the couch. Um, so my job is to make it make them feel safe while they're going through this um, pretty physical reaction. So I don't like doing it over, over uh, tele therapy just because I don't get a full sense of the person and what they're going through. Well, I might be able to convince you otherwise just to try this out. Cause remember I live in the middle of nowhere and uh, right. <laughs> so we might, we might have to have a discussion about this. I'm just curious. So, okay. I get, I am starting to visualize kind of a little bit what happens. Um, interesting. Yeah. I'm, I, I'm still, I'm still processing it. I'm going to go back and listen to the podcast again, but, um, moving on, tell me more about you do another therapy. Well, you do lots of things, but you do another one called dialectical behavior therapy. What is that? And how is that? Yes. That's not even the same at all. That's completely different. Yeah. So that's behavior therapy, uh, known as DBT. Um, that was popularized in the late nineties, um, for a condition known as borderline personality disorder. And what borderline personality disorder is, um, there's a lot there, but essentially it is a person who does not have a sense of self and um, is doing like a lot of pleasing behavior um, and is very confused about who they are in the world. As such, they have extreme emotions. Um, they can manifest as being very afraid of abandonment, um, very like obsessive with other people, um, can be kind of needy, kind of clingy, but their experience is very confused and very... Uh, it's, it's sad. Um, and it's people that I really, I really sympathize with. They often don't know who they are and they often don't know how to cope with the world around them. I was going to say, doesn't everyone have a little bit of that? <laughs> but this is more extreme, right? This is when it's pretty, well, just yeah. extreme. Everyone has a little bit of that. I mean, so, so that's the great thing about mental illness is that we all have it, right? Um, you can think that's why people are, can be very afraid of it. But everybody has that kind of putting on a face around other people. But imagine that to the you know disorder level, right? Where the person does so much of that, they don't even know who they are anymore. Um, and they have this very visceral sense of no self. Um, so just like kind of the, the clinical extreme of, of that behavior, which everybody has. Um, so what DBT is, is it is a curriculum. Um, it's also research-based. It's heavily, heavily research-based. That gives people coping skills um, and gives people community. So I'm a big group psychotherapy guy. And I think the community really is the part that heals, to be honest, of people that also have this experience. But the coping skills are very helpful, and it focuses on four things, which I'll just mention briefly. We don't have to go into as much, but they are um, mindfulness is number one. So that you can see the through line right there. There is something called emotional regulation. So skills on how to bring yourself, bring your state up and down as needed. Um, interpersonal effectiveness, so literally how to have a conversation and how to have an argument with somebody, um, how to get what you want. And the last one is distress tolerance. So when you're really, really activated and you're really freaking out, um, people with, with borderline personality disorder um, often self-harm. So they, they'll, they may cut um, or they may use substances to a dangerous extent. So distress tolerance skills are to bring them back down um, into baseline. How to win an argument. That's what I heard out of that. Just joking. Uh, <laughs> yeah. How do you, how do you, uh, how do you un, do you, is it hard? Do you ever internalize? So I did a podcast interview last week that won't be published till October, but it was kind of about how we take on other people's emotions a little bit. It was a, a little bit of a theme in it and we just kind of unintentionally do it. We take on all people's problems. How do you disconnect from this work at the end of the day? 
Um, so I actually work to process through. Um, that's, that definitely happens. And the primary way that I work, which is uh, through psychoanalysis, is there's a lot of that. And what that's called in the field is transference. So I can feel people's emotions. They, 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 they transfer their emotions and their projections onto me. Um, that's a whole other podcast right there. But mm-hmm. what I do is, is I'm in so many self-care things. So I have my own personal therapist. I have a private yoga teacher. I have a dietitian. I have um, a physical therapist. I have um, a group uh, therapist. I have a supervisor. And I'm part of a fair number of professional groups and like group text messages and things. Um, so I really insulate, like literally I'll tell you all my money goes towards supporting my job. Mm. Um, cause it's really, really, really hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if I'm not seeing patients, I'm recovering with patients or talking about patients or processing through those emotions, um, you know, either physically like through yoga or at the gym, um, or emotionally with, you know, those supervisors and therapists that are, that are in my life. Um, and I, I'm pretty strict about it. I think like that's what it takes. Like if you really want to be good at a job like this, and it's I, I think it's one of the weirdest jobs out there. If you really want to be good, you need to have your team in place. Because I've seen so many therapists, you know, burn out and, and become dangerous actually uh, to their patients because they're acting from a place of, you know, compassion fatigue and not from, you know, a place of clinical like excellence. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I probably mentioned this before on the podcast. Um, someone, I was at a conference and just this line really struck me. You know, the person giving the conference was very well known, you know, very, um, a, you know, a celebrity of sorts. And she just said, smart people get therapy. And I think absolutely, because you cannot bottle all these things up. And I love that you just told us about your team because I feel that way a lot. Um, sometimes, you know, not only for myself that there needs to be a team approach, but for my clients. And I really embrace that. I mean, that's why it's called integrative nutrition. I'm looking at the whole picture, but if necessary, I'm going to refer you to the proper channels. I'm not going to live in a silo and just expect that I can help you with everything. And this is the problem with when I work conventionally, when I do contract work, it's very challenging. Sometimes I see my clients actually need more of a therapist than they do um, a dietitian at that time because people aren't really ready to deal with the food issue because they have they're so concerned that their nephew died last week or you know whatever and and let me qualify this by saying I, I contract in a place in a dialysis unit where it's complex medical conditions so they need nutrition um, intervention every month but they also have a team a social worker etc and a lot of times you know you have this the beautiful thing that I have trouble letting go of that contract is I have a relationship with these people because I get to see them every month and sometimes they just need a friend and I just see it so much where I'll have like, they're so excited for me to come back when I'm not talking about nutrition with them as much because they literally just need some therapy. So my point is, is we have to be so conscious of referring and having a team. And that's something I would like to make sure I've got more people. So I'm glad we met because I'd like to have more people in my network. Um, I had a client ask me, she's got quite a host of of issues and um, smoking cessation is just kind of a a small piece, but we talked about how we really needed to have some smoking cessation before, you know, optimal health could really occur. And so she said, well, I'm, I'm relying on you to help me through that. I'm like, well, I'm happy to provide you support with that, but let me connect you with someone else. And that's another, another service I think that you do as well. And do you use one of these other existing therapies or is that something totally different? Curious. Well, so I weave them all in together, but for um, addiction recovery, I find modern psychoanalysis to be the most helpful. 
um, which is essentially teaching, teaching people how to free associate, you know, say the thing that comes to their mind and understand their unconscious material. So it's really effective with addiction because people who are addicts and that are coming to therapy um, want to quit, right? So they're like, I want to stop smoking, you know, yesterday. And then they find themselves buying cigarettes. And to me, that means that there's some kind of unconscious material happening, right? Like consciously, every part of their body wants to stop, but unconsciously, they still do the behavior. And I'm, I'm in recovery, so I've had this experience so many times of, almost feeling hijacked or feeling like a zombie and using, even though my whole brain is like, no, 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 you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, getting into analysis uh, was very helpful because I can start to understand that there are many other factors at play. Um, and some of the factors at play are things like secondary gains. So often um, we're actually rewarded by our family or by our community for using in some kind of shadowy ways. Um, sometimes there are, there's trauma that we're covering up. Um, so it's not that we want to get high. It's that being sober is so painful, um, that being high is a better alternative. Um, sometimes there are mixed beliefs about the world and that we're, you know, attributing certain things to substance use, um, things like, you know, I mean, that's things that like, like being cool, but things like, you know, uh, a family member who you really respected and was really close to, um, use this substance and, and there's a party that still wants to be like them. So there's often these kind of unconscious threads that keep a pattern in place. And I found that uh, psychoanalysis, which is the most classic form of talk therapy, is incredibly effective at changing the character, especially around um, substance use. Yeah, that's super interesting. And I think there is something beneficial about having personal experiences and empathy um, when you're trying to help others, because when you have a personal experience from overcoming things yourself, you just it's that experience is amplified basically um the way you help people so so that's very interesting and oh i was going to mention one other thing you were talking earlier about um more or less some anxiety well and maybe maybe that's like a faux pod (laughs) to use the wrong term but um just overall um you were talking about some things that i see that there's also nutritional intervention for like we have So for example, um, in genetically, some people are predisposed to maybe have more anxiety and you've maybe looked at nutrigenomics or that's another topic for another day, but it's really interesting. So if you have this long-term anxiety, yes, it would be helpful to do something like EMDR, but it might also be helpful to hack your genetics and look at, okay, where is in this biochemical pathway possibly I have a little bit of a misspelling is what we call it kind of when you have a slow genetic snip or mm-hmm. kind of a deficiency in that and where can I kind of add in or supplement to that and kind of bring some calming as well. So it's like multifactorial. So it's kind of interesting. I think there, I think that has the potential to be a beautiful marriage right there, like nutrition and, um, and psychotherapy. So, I mean, obviously I'm a little biased, but, uh, I don't know. It was just something that came to mind as we were talking about it that gets my wheels rolling. So I like having someone that's in this um, area to chat with about that. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, the treatment team is the most effective thing. Mm-hmm. And like, not only because it works through all these different modalities, but I think really, like I said, I'm a big group person. So like the idea that someone is supported by a team and getting that attention and getting that love, like that is a, a factor not to be ignored. You know, um, that factor can be incredibly healing. And sometimes that can actually be the pivot point. If somebody feels supported by a, a group of professionals. Um, that care about them and that give them, you know, their best effort. 
there's a lot to be said for that. Yeah, this is super interesting. We could have definitely divided this into two podcasts. So um, I have... Back. I have so many more questions about um, kind of how you do things and who it helps. And I think what I'll do is ask our listeners for feedback from this episode and allow them to guide, uh, you know, your return. But let's move into the other nuts and bolts why we initially kind of started talking or what made me curious about the things that you do after I kind of looked at all your um all your stuff. So when Erica introduced us, she said you recently lost launched a toy company called NeuroToys. So I checked that out and there's fidget spinners and other neuroscience toys. And I just want to know why, what's the story behind that and the inspiration? Yeah, totally. Um, so I had the experience that maybe you or some of your listeners have had where you just see these things everywhere. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I was like, what is this? <laughs> what, what are these mm -hmm. things? Um, and I asked around, you know, I'm connected in the therapy community out here in Colorado and some people were really for them. Some people, uh, you know, were really against them. Like for whatever reason, just like little triangle fidget spinner is an incredibly polarizing topic right now. Like people got all kinds of opinions about it. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to get in and understand really what was going on with that. Um, and what I hope to do, um, in the market is because people were making a lot of really intense claims, right, of saying, like, this cures AT, uh, uh, ADHD, and this is, like, you know, the miracle cure for autism, and this is, like, you know, they should be in every classroom, they should be in every waiting room, and they should be everywhere, and I want to, being a researcher, figure out what, what the deal was with this. Um, so I did some research, um, which I guess we'll talk about in a little bit, and found middling results um you know there's not a lot of research real research out there on them quite yet because uh, it's still pretty new um but there is some there is some um and they find that similar to what i was saying about meditation is there's a lot of subjective decrease in in symptoms so people report that it makes them more focused and makes them more calm but actually behaviorally and i didn't find any neuroscience research yet but behaviorally it doesn't seem to have any effect at all um but people report being more calm. As a therapist, we get really interested in people's subjective experience, right? That's kind of my wheelhouse is, is people's perception of the world. So with NeuroToys, I aim to create a store that is curated by therapists. So I'm going around and I'm in the process right now of soliciting um, people who I know, people who are, you know, big names in the field to review these toys, test them out, run little experiments and let me know which ones work for them and work for their patients. Because there's so much out there, and none of it is through this therapeutic lens, right? None of it is actually validated, verified, or founded in anything. So what I hope for NeuroToys to be is to actually be kind of like, you know, the researcher's <laughs> store for fidget spinners. Um, so we want everything on there to be proven, tested, and backed up by somebody who is in the therapeutic field, somebody who knows what, what they're talking about. Interesting. So what are some things bef besides fidget spinners that are on NeuroToys? Yeah, so um, fidget spinners, anxiety relief, uh, things like stress balls, um, things like massage blankets, uh, the Theracane, if you, if you know what that is. That's kind of one area of stretch reduction. We also have um, a category called brain development, which includes Montessori school approved toys for kids. Mm -hmm. um, so Montessori school has actually done quite a bit of research and quite a bit of uh, testimonials around a lot of these toys. So we went, we found their distributors, found their suppliers, and we're stocking those toys. Um, so for helping like developing brains kind of get smarter. Um, we also have a category called emotional support, which are essentially a bunch of stuffed animals. Um, but those are very helpful 
um, for kids, uh, especially on the spectrum, who often need something to squeeze or to hug. Um, and then lastly, we have play therapy supplies. So play therapy is a whole different methodology of therapy. I did a little bit at my internship, but really one of my business partners is a specialist in that. And these toys are things that play therapists can use in order to do that type of work. Um, and that type of work really quickly is essentially if you look at a kid, uh, typically between ages like three and around seven, the way that they play, like the games that they make up uh, around their world are coming from their brain, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have a kid that is abused and you give them like a, uh, a dollhouse, they will actually enact the abuse with the dolls. Like they'll just do that because that's what is on their brain. So a play therapist can, you know, using these, these supplies and it's like dollhouses and action figures and, and cards and stuff like that, um, can set up a play environment and do interventions through play and actually help the child to process their emotions and to talk about their emotions using the toys. Because kids can't really talk about themselves quite yet. The brain isn't there. But they can project their world onto, like, a set of Legos or onto, um, like, a dollhouse or, you know, a, a bunch of animals. That's really interesting. Um, it's adorable when they're, what's on their brain is cute and, you know, whatever. And it's really sad when it's not and there's abuse in the situation. And I think that's one of those things I just flash back to my daughter being in pre-K last year where they they had playtime. And I just think about this is a really hard thing for teachers to have to experience because you know, they're inadvertently witnessing play therapy, probably, you know, because that's what kids will do, right? You're just observing them. And so um, I think I think teachers sometimes have to take the brunt of, of some of that stuff when it's dealing with kids, because mm -hmm. people don't always prioritize um, therapy as an option. And, and maybe in more settings, we should have in house therapists. But going back to the reality of like, look where, uh, you know, we are sometimes, sometimes rural gets the short end of the stick, right? Because it's kind of challenging. How do we serve people? But we're also in the 21st century. So I like to think that there's good options, you know, with, um, I don't know, with, with technology and stuff as well. So as I'm thinking about your toy company and what you say is going on, you're curating it from therapists and you're doing many experiments. I love that. And what it reminds me of, like the potential reminds me of as I drink my, uh, chaga mushroom tea, uh, basically this website that I buy, uh, it's actually hot cocoa. I think I buy this. I, I love these mushrooms that have different benefits like lion's mane, chaga, whatever They really get you in the zone. Anyway, um, on their website, they, they have little modules that'll teach you about each type of mushroom in the background and the research. And so I see that potential on your website at some point, um, as you do that. Cause I feel like that's once you, for me, once I know the benefit of something then I'm like, sure, I'll get that. <laughs> so, um, I feel like that's the potential direction, uh, for your neuro toys because you're already collecting that, that data. And so I'll be curious to see where you go with that. Yeah, that's, that's the vision is to have a like therapeutically supported, um, store for these types of things. So, so we can be the place for people that are actually wanting real, real results and wanting to hear the opinions of professionals, um, and kind of, you know, dodging around the sales pitch, you know, for me, Neurotoys is like my fourth priority, to be honest. You know, like I'm, I'm a therapist full time, right? And I have a nonprofit and I do coaching. I mean, I have so much stuff going on. Right. So I'm not in this to make a ton of money, right? I'm in this to provide a service. I'm in this to learn about e-commerce. I'm in this to, you know, connect with my community. It's kind of like a passion side project. Mm -hmm. um, 
So I'm more interested in providing accurate information, even if that information doesn't sell toys. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, I just want to make it available for people because I had trouble finding the information. And a lot of people ask the same question. So I want our place to be a place for people to get that. Right, for sure. And I can resonate with when you say, oh, it's kind of like my fourth priority, another passion project. I think sometimes we just like to feel challenged or we see a hole and we're like, oh, I wish I could fill that. Okay, I guess I just will. Um, it's just kind <laughs> yeah, of a it's, a, it's a... it's a game, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It is a game. Life is a bit of a chess game. Okay, so... You know, when I first asked you about this topic, you sent me a few research articles, which is a man after a dietitian's heart, right, to, <laughs> to send me research articles. But you're saying that there's just not a lot of research about the fidget spinners. Um, or I mean, there was the research you sent me. I felt like there was a little bit of promise. Um, why don't you can you distill that a little bit further? Like, what is your overall take? If you had to just point blank, tell me. So fidget spinners might work or they might not work whatever it is, whoever invented them is making a lot of money. Is that the takeaway? You tell me the takeaway. Yeah. So similar, and I would assume this is very similar in the, in the dietitian world. Um, these types of interventions work very, very well for people that have, um, conditions, right. That have like disorders, right. That have like big problems, right. So for people that are on the autism spectrum, it can be helpful, right? For people that have severe ADHD, it can be helpful. For kids who have sensory processing disorder, it can be helpful. Um, and they've seen, that's where a lot of the research is going into, is the kind of clinical application, right? But most people who use those things don't have the disorders, right? Because those disorders are pretty rare, right? right. Um, so the people that, for regular people, kind of what I was saying before, they report being more focused, but we don't see them be more focused. But that doesn't mean that there's no benefits. There actually are, are quite a bit of, of benefits. Um, so I'll start with the clinical thing. What helps for the people in the, in the clinical populations is that it can help them to focus and you know use their fidgety energy in a way that is not so harmful for themselves, right? So for instance, people um, with autism will often, you know, um, you know, in the most extreme cases, like chew on their own hands, you know, or rip their own clothes, um, or like, you know, break apart pieces, like, you know, this comment to like break apart pens, or just like break apart things in the environment, because they have a lot of this like repetitive type of motion and, and energy that they go through. So if you can have a toy that can do that in a way that is not harmful to the patient and to the environment around them, that's a great benefit, right? Because they find a way to occupy their mind, occupy their senses, and reduce the harm to the place around them. Um, similarly, for ch kids with sensory processing disorder, which um, sensory processing disorder essentially means that they get overwhelmed by a lot of light, a lot of sound, um, a lot of sensation, and they can have panic attacks, right? So if you can give them a, a, a fidget toy, and they've done research with this, they can focus on that, and they can actually um, tolerate more stimulating environments if they have a toy to focus on, because it, it tends to distract them from all the different inputs. So instead of trying to, you know, bounce their brain around, they can just focus on, you know, uh, spinning the fidget spinner. Mm, you know, so. I just realized that apparently I should be uh, paying more attention to this for my five-year-old because if she's not busy doing something, she's got to be doing something mildly. You know, it's kind of an attention thing as well, probably. But if she can color, man, we're going to color for an hour. But uh, okay, I kind of see some of those behavioral things. So maybe not the worst idea to get her, you know, to to just uh, entertain that idea and, and help 
Um, even if it's not a fidget toy, cause there's a lot of little toys, like kids at that age, I think as well, they start to like to play with little things with their hands, right. And kind of really make believe, um, but kind of some of the same principles, but a fidget toy works for all ages, I guess. Um, what else? So, uh, how can a parent decide maybe if their kiddo should have a fidget toy or how does an adult decide if they should be using that? Yeah, totally. Um, so essentially the, the biggest benefit that's come from this is that they're everywhere, right? Um, and that's a benefit that is, I think, not spoken about as much. But fidget spinners, for better or for worse, have infiltrated the popular kind of zeitgeist, right? Like, we know what they are. And it's made this fidget behavior more acceptable, in a way. Um, so if you're a person that is just fidgety, if you get anxious, you know, um, I actually have one that I use for podcasts sometimes because my, my hands are moving around a lot, right? And sometimes I find myself clicking a pen a lot um, or, you know, twirling something in my, in my hands. So having a fidget toy is helpful for me because it just gives me something to do that is more controllable, right? And something that is more acceptable. Um, similarly, like if you're stressed out about a job interview, because of where we are in our society, you can play with the fidget spinner, like in the waiting room, right? And no one's really going to judge you, right? If you're like, you know, crinkling up your, 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 you know, clothes or, you know, you're like really fidgeting with like a magazine, there's going to be a little bit more judgment around there. So <laughs> it can be helpful if you know yourself having these types of, you know, tactile, repetitive behaviors to buy something that the culture is like, yeah, that's cool. You know, that's like a new hip thing. Um, so that's the thing. It's not going to cure you of your anxiety, mm-hmm. but it's going to let you express it and cope with it in a way that is more accepted um, by the culture right now. And I think that's a really important thing. You know, I think that's a really important thing, um, especially for the people in the clinical um, populations, because it means that their disorders are getting more attention, which is always a good thing. And it means that, you know, toys and tools that will actually help them are becoming more available and becoming cheaper, which is critical um, because they need all the help that they can get. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, so should we be putting fidget toys in waiting rooms? I think, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm for it. Um, I think that they can be very helpful, um, especially for little kids, especially in, you know, medical or clinical environments where they're nervous about going into, you know, a doctor's appointment. Um, I mean, doctors have been putting toys in their offices for, for decades. And I think having these is just another, is a good um, tool for the arsenal, if that right. makes sense. Yeah. Um, I've seen some doctors give it to children as they're kind of like, you know, sitting on the doctor's bench waiting for the, you know, nurse to leave the doctor to come back. Like just giving them something to play with Mm. can help to distract um, and to start to channel those difficult emotions and and that anxiety. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I was actually thinking about that as well is that in a way for little ones, we've already put toys there and kind of things to fidget with. And so this is just making it more socially accepted for older people kids or adults to fidget with something or to play with something because who really ever grows up? I don't know that anyone really does. So, Mm -hmm. um, makes a lot of sense. So do you think therapists should be using, um, different neuro toys in their practice or is that still to be determined based on the kind of, uh, research that you're doing with your peers and yourself? Well, that's one of the big questions that we are trying to answer. Um, but essentially, I think it can be helpful depending on the patient. So there's something in psychotherapy that we're kind of always monitoring, which is called the window of tolerance. And that is the level at which the level of stimulation or level of anxiety that the person can be effective, um, uh, an effective communicator, right? So 
Uh, you can think of it as like the amount of feelings somebody is having. So if somebody's having a lot of feelings and a lot of stimulation, they often can't talk about it, right? Which makes our job hard because we're the talking cure, right? Mm-hmm. Um, similarly, if people have no feelings or no stimulation, they uh, can't talk about that either because they're feeling like dead, right? They're feeling like understimulated. So for people who have a very uh, small window of tolerance, which means that you know they get understimulated or, or overstimulated very quickly, neurotoids are very helpful. Um, because they can actually kind of bleed off some of that stimulation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they can either stimulate them by giving them something to do, right? Or they can help to bring them down if you use something like a compression wrap um, or like a massage blanket um, or like a heating pad. You can help to actually bring down that stimulation so you can continue to have a conversation. Um, so I think it's very helpful for emotional regulation, um, especially people that have that narrow band. If someone has a very wide band, if they've been in treatment for a long time and they can tolerate a lot of stimulation and tolerate not a lot of stimulation, right? If they have a much thicker window of tolerance, then I don't know if it's as helpful um, because the work is different at that point, right? The work is more about self-exploration. It's more about self-discovery. It's more about um, talking about unconscious material. So they don't need to be coping in the room. But if someone needs to cope in the room with you, yes, a neurotoy can be incredibly helpful just to keep the conversation going. Mm, sure. Okay. Uh, so this is kind of my classic question. and I've rephrased it a little bit from um, what I had provided to you earlier. But um, what is your gut reaction for telling, giving someone some resources or tools? Like if you, if someone's listening to this and thinking, oh, I need to either start with this meditation or being more mindful, or maybe I need some more intervention. Like what are some tools and resources for either increasing mindfulness some strategies or where can they get more information about other therapies that they might need? Oh, totally. Um, so I want to make myself available just on every podcast. You can actually just email me directly. So mark at mark-azulay.com and I will connect you not only with resources, but I will connect you um, with practitioners. I have uh, kind of a international network at this point. So I'm happy to connect people with what they need and, and, and who they need. Um, also, my website has tons of resources on there. There's a great book list that includes a lot of mindfulness kind of ex- uh, activities, exercises, instruction, as well as things around, you know, business development and uh, creative renewal and uh, working with trauma. So there's, there's quite a bit of stuff on there. Um, and then we're working to add a lot of research articles to the NeuroToy site itself. So if you're interested in looking at the research behind those types of things or interested in buying one, you can definitely go check out that website and it should all be up there soon. Yeah, which is neuro-toys.com, right? I think it's called. Yep, yep, yep. Yep, you're in the the, the dashes, Mark Dashes Zule. So keep it consistent for sure. Uh, and I also see under the products on your website, you have a little meditation. Um, it says you start each of your therapy sessions with a five-minute meditation. Ah, so I was just telling you earlier that sometimes I start sessions with clients with some breathing exercises. And I'm not sure if they think I'm crazy. I know (laughs) that it works. Um, and I ask people, I tell, because my platform is reducing stress of all types, right? Um, mostly nutritional stress, but we don't discount the fact that people have other stresses by any means. And so, um, I wish people would stick with it. Right. (laughs) But I love that you start with five minute meditation, which makes a lot of sense in your, in your area. So I see that you have these meditations available on your website as well. Yeah, you can just go and download those. Those are totally free. So mm-hmm. it's my voice. 
Um, another great site for those is UCLA has a lab, um, which is my name, um, M-A-R-C, which is the Mindful Awareness Research Center, and they have meditations as well. And those are really great because those are the ones that have been used in the research studies directly. Um, so if you want the effects that the research studies have, you can do the intervention that the research studies do. Um, so that's another great uh, resource that's, as well. That's cool. I'll put that in the show notes and the description so people can find all these resources. All Just three of them, right? Mark Dashazule, Neurotoys, and this one from UCLA, right? Yep. Okay, cool. Um, I loved this. It's a muscle. It's a mind muscle. I need to flex more often that I know I want to make a more diligent effort to do. Um, my friend Miller, I know I mentioned this in a previous podcast, but it doesn't hurt to mention it again. I love that he says this. He says, I hate when people say that I know it's my pet peeve when people say I know, but they don't actually do it because if you don't actually do it, then you don't really know. And I think we can go back and apply that to any of these principles too. We can get this great thing like, oh, I know I could relieve stress if I did some of these things. Well, we all can agree that we want to relieve more stress. So, so let's implement, right? Um, so Thank you so much. Is there, I think, I think we got your contact details about where people can find you, mark-azule.com, or they can just email you if they need resources. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm just, my mind is reeling about other topics. Um, it'd be so fun to kind of, you know, when we're running experiments, I, there's specific nutrients that are deficient in people that have certain, um, certain anxiety or, you know, maybe inocytosol or vitamin B6, or it'd be fun to look at those patterns. And a lot of my clients, um, when they say they have anxiety, depression, et cetera, it's not a surprise to me because I work in gut health. And when your gut's not optimum, you know, working optimally and hormones aren't being produced properly, then it makes a lot of sense for you to have those issues, but it'd be fun to do some experimental work with that. So it'll be another conversation for another day. I appreciate all the knowledge that you dropped on the audience today. I learned a ton. I'm gonna have to go back and listen again. And please, if you guys have questions, if this triggered all kinds of questions, make sure to send them to us. Hello at lessstresslife.com because we'd love to have Mark back and uh, tell us some more. Great, thank you. It's been a pleasure to be on the podcast. Yeah, for sure. Okay, have a great day. 